in the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges, chapter 13. Today we come to consider the life of uh, Samson, and uh, I am grateful for the stewardship of a few minutes of your time this morning. I uh, will tell you that Samson's story is four chapters in the book of Judges. No other person gets nearly that much ink, which means that his story is long and multicolored, multivaried in all kinds of ways, and we could talk about various things. I would suggest you could probably preach seven or eight sermons, no exaggeration, on just the life of Samson. Most people, as they uh, have heard sermons, and some of you have been around church a long time, you've heard a lot of sermons on Samson, because Samson's a very popular character, primarily because of the tragedy of his life. He's a very sympathetic guy. Uh, we, want, we want to understand how a guy with, quote, so much promise could turn out to be such a loser. I use those words in air quotes because I don't believe any of that. And I don't want you to believe that. And I'm going to spend the next 35 minutes convincing you not to believe any of that. Let me. uh, Let me tell you a couple things. There are only seven people in the Bible. Where the Bible tells their story of their birth, their life and their death. Only seven. Every one of them. Are heroes. Isaac, the sons of Jacob, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, Jesus. The only person on that list whose name is ever besmudged by preachers is Samson. Now, who do you think has got a problem? Samson's story is very familiar. You'll note that his birth narrative is very similar to John the Baptist. Mother is barren. Angel visits going to take a Nazarite vow. Don't cut his hair. Don't drink liquor. Don't touch dead things. Going to be a servant of God. Turns out John the Baptist is a whole lot like Samson. Then, of course, there's Jesus. His story. Mother is not barren in the same way, but mother has no children. She's a virgin. Angel appears. You're going to have a son. You're going to be special. You're going to be used in profound ways in the service of God. What you find is that Samson's story is very similar to both John the Baptist. And to Jesus. So the next time you hear a preacher tell you that Samson is a loser, you need to have some uh, like neon flashing 
antenna that go off and said, I don't know what's about to happen, but it ain't going to be good because this guy's about to deceive me. The truth is that Samson is a tragic character on one level. We'll talk about that a lot in a minute. Let me point you to chapter 13 and verse 1, and you'll see a familiar formula. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Stop there. What we have here is another chapter in the book of Judges of the evil of Israel. There are 12 judges named in the book of Judges. Six of them are minor. We only know their names. Six of them are major. We know a paragraph at least about them. The first one that we know a lot about is a guy named Othniel. Second one was a guy named Ehud. You remember Ehud's guy with the dagger into the king's belly. It went bad after that. Uh, then, of course, you have Deborah, who's the judge, and then Barak, who's kind of the military guy slash judge. Uh, you have Gideon, you have Jephthah, and you have Samson, all given sizable portions of the book of Judges. But Samson is different. He's given four chapters. He gets more ink than any of them. He is the antidote for this problem, chapter 13, verse 1. He's the fix. God raises up this man, Samson, to deal with Israel. He does so in a familiar fashion. Israel goes off on this immoral life. They, they leave God behind. We see repeatedly in the book of Judges the description of Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I've likened it to our country today. So much of what's going on in our country today is just basically moistening your fingers, sticking your hand up in the air, deciding which way the wind's blowing and saying, yeah, that's what I believe. We don't have people with a moral compass anymore. We don't have people with any sort of personal integrity uh, or spiritual integrity. We have Christians who are jettisoning their faith and deciding, you know what, that was good for my mom or my dad or my grandparents, or that was good for Greg Belser, but that's not good for me because those folks are losers. Well, I want to tell you something, friend. If, if everybody around you is a loser and you're the only smart one, you need a mirror. The reality is that we don't have, a, as people, humankind, we don't have a good track record of basically doing whatever we want and really prospering. Uh, in fact, we have, we're batting zero. It's not a recipe for success. So Israel does it again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. So God raises up an opponent to drive them back to him. What is God doing with the Philistines? Would we say God is punishing Israel? Yes, we could use that word and that'd be right. Most people don't get that word. They think that the God's punishment is a, it comes out of his wrath or his vicious anger that he's trying to destroy Israel. In fact, that's not what he's doing here. He's punishing Israel in more of a disciplinary fashion. He's trying to drive Israel back to God. This is the purpose of parenting. Your children rebel. Your, your children go off on some wild tangent somewhere. You discipline them with the goal of bringing them back 
not for the purpose of driving them away. So what is God doing with the Philistines? He's allowing a 40-year oppression. By the way, not only is Samson given four chapters, the Philistines are given 40 years. None of the oppressors in the book of Judges are given that much time except the Philistines. So these people are really bad. 40 years God gives an opponent jurisdiction over them to drive them back to him. In the end, God raises up a judge, we know his name is Samson, to put an end to the opponent. So God loosens the opponent, and then how does he drive the opponent back and bring life or freedom to his people? He raises up a judge to put an end to the opponent. But what's interesting in the book of Samson, or in this chapter, these chapters of the life of Samson, is that historically in the book of Judges, the Bible records that Israel cries out to God. Oh God, help us. Oh God, this hurts. Oh God, relent. Change. Come. Fix. But that's not here. You can read Judges 13 and you say there's no, there's no cry on behalf of Israel. So the question is, why did God relent and raise up Samson anyway? Well, that's why this sermon could go on for days. <laughs> because the reality is, even when we don't pray, even when we don't repent, even when we don't cry out to God, God's will will nonetheless stand. What's really going on in the Bible? It's one long thread woven through the whole thing. Man has rebelled against God, and God is saving these people. God is delivering these people. In order to do that, he must protect the message and the people and the seed of the woman in the person of the Savior. Men and women need a Savior. You need a Savior. What we find here is, a, if you will, a, a temporary, if you will, a superficial saving. The problem with uh, these stories is we think that somehow these stories are moral lessons. That's what happens with most preaching on Samson. They want to turn him into a moral character. By the way, he's a very immoral character. And that's the point, right? So uh, Samson, he's a guy just had so much promise. You know, he had great parents. We don't know anything about his parents. His mother's totally unnamed. We don't even know her name. So before you go bragging on her parents, you might learn her name. Oh, by the way, she's not named. So we want these great, you know, it's a great family. He comes from a great family. He has so much promise. And he could have, might have, should have, oughta, But he didn't. He turned out to be a womanizer, which is true. He turns out to be a compromiser, which is true. But he turns out to be a man upon whom the Lord put his strength in. And he made him a bold liberator of Israel. Take it back to 13, chapter 13. Uh, verse 4, uh, we, we might as well just start in verse 2 again. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you're barren, you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I'll stop here. A couple things stand out. Number one, 
He is to be called a Nazarite. We don't know what that is, right? Unless you read the Bible, you don't know what that is. Numbers chapter 6 tells us that a Nazarite was characterized by three things primarily. One, he doesn't cut his hair or his beard. Two, he doesn't drink. And uh, number three, he doesn't touch dead things. He's consecrated to God. Now, if he happens to touch dead things, there is a formula for becoming clean again. So you're unclean for the moment. You go and you present yourself to the priest and so forth, and you become clean again. There is a, a, a process for be restoring cleanliness because, after all, at some point, you might or could touch a, a, a clean or a, a dead animal. So that's a Nazarite. There are only three people in the Bible, three people who are identified as Nazarites, who took a Nazarite vow. Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. There's no record in the Bible of anybody else ever taking a Nazarite vow. Again, the similarity between Samson, John the Baptist. Could go on and on for that about days on that one as well. But what's going on here? Israel is not crying out to God. So God sends this boy, this son, to a barren woman. And she, he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a savior. So what's really happening in Judges? Judges is not primarily about the immorality or failure of the judges. It is about the success of the judges in putting an end to the oppression or the punishment that God has brought upon his people because they are the failures. In other words, let me say it a different way. You think Samson's a failure? Well, I got one better. Israel's a failure. You think Samson's immoral? Well, I got one better. Israel is immoral. The problem, the, the, the reason they need a judge is because they have an oppressor. And the reason they have an oppressor is because they are Israel and they are not faithful to God. This is the problem that we contend with in our current culture. We think that somehow everybody else has a problem and we don't. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, I hear these preachers talk about sin. I'm not a sinner. Well, dear friend, yes, you are. You say, well, I'm not a sinner like Samson. <laughs> well, neither am I. In some respects, I'm worse. But the story of Samson is the stuff of Hollywood movies. Movies. It's just full of drama. His mother is barren. An angel comes. The baby's consecrated to God with a vow. It's one of these weird vows. Never cut his hair. Can you imagine a guy who's never had a haircut? I mean, they didn't like John the Baptist. You know, he's weird. He wears clothes, animal skins, and he eats wild locusts. Listen, if you're eating cicadas, I don't care. You're weird. You say, well, Brother Greg, cicadas are not truly locusts. Okay, bear with me. It's an illustration. Okay, if you're going around picking shells off of tree branches and eating them, you're a weirdo. So, John the Baptist was weird. Okay, but this story gets even better because he's got superhuman strength. He's got a lot of interest in the opposite sex, another thing Hollywood really loves. There's lots of betrayal. There's lots of violence. And then there is the final and tragic demise of Samson. He dies in a pagan temple, the temple of Dagon. They're having a big party, and they bring Samson out. 
because his eyes are gouged out and he's their slave by this time. He's just going to entertain us. So if you look on the front of your bulletin, by the way, you, you've seen that picture of the book of Judges all these times. There's two judges presented, two stories presented on the cover of your bulletin. The top one is Gideon, the bottom one is Samson. You say, well, I wonder if that's what Samson looked like. I don't know. All the cameras were broken. Nobody knows. So well, I bet he was muscular. Really? Why? Well, he was strong. Yeah, except he wasn't strong until the Lord made him strong. You think the Lord needs big muscles to make strong men? <laughs> no, big muscles are necessary for men to make strong men. But God can take a guy who's not muscular and make him as strong as he wants him to be. So it's quite a story. We don't have time to read it. It's four chapters. Did I mention that? Yeah, I think I did. So I just want to read a couple of highlights. Jump over to chapter 14. Chapter 1. Samson is now an adult. And uh, he goes down to Timnah. So he's, he's a Danite, which means he's, he's from up north, way up north. Dan is the northernmost city in Israel. And he goes down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. The Philistines are are coastal people. They, they, their cities are along the Mediterranean. Uh, there are five uh, Philistine cities named in the book of Judges. Samson defeats three of them. The other two are defeated by other judges. Uh, the, the most prominent Philistine city is Gaza. Gaza remains a city uh, in what today we would call uh, Palestine uh, to this day. The other cities are all uh, destroyed, had their name changed, etc. But Gaza remains. So the Philistines are people from these cities. Goliath, by the way, is the most famous Philistine of all. He is from the city of Gath, G-A-T-H, Gath. Gath's one of the coastal cities uh, for the Philistines. So you'll say, well, Goliath, that's David. I thought, I thought Samson was going to eliminate the Philistines. No, he doesn't. He begins the process. But the Philistines are still a problem later with Samuel, the next judge. He's also the problem with, with Saul, the first king. And ultimately, the Philistine problem is never eliminated until David. When David defeats Goliath, ultimately, the Philistines are eradicated. So this is an ongoing problem with these people. So he goes down to Timnah, verse 1, chapter 14. And he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the girls of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? She's not our people. She's not our belief. The point here is not her race. The point is her uncircumcised status. She is not a follower of God. She is. This is a interfaith relationship, not an interracial relationship. The world creates those kind of parameters, but not the Bible. So what happens here? Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Where have we seen that phrase before? We've seen it all over the book of Judges. What are these people doing? They're doing whatever they want. It seems to me that we should do this. We live in a culture today that wants to do this, this very thing. It's my life. It's my body. It's my decision. It's my priorities. It's my values. 
You don't have a right to tell me about anything. Well, of course we do. Societies have always told their people, these are the parameters. These are the boundaries. Until they don't. The book of Judges talks of a time when there are no boundaries. People just did what they wanted. Sort of like the motto for Outback Steakhouse. No rules. Just right. Just do what you want for as long as you want, with whomever you want. And nobody can tell you what to do, and nobody should tell you what to do. And if they do, then mock them or criticize them or somehow hurt them because they disagree. That's the world we live in. Turns out God has standards. God actually has expectations. Turns out we actually are accountable to God. I am. I got here with no help of me. I stand here today, no help of me. You say, Brother Greg, you work out. No. Brother Greg, you sleep only because I have to. I get so tired, I just have to sleep. Brother Greg, you eat. Well, no. Yes, I do. <laughs> but I don't eat because I have to. I eat because I want to. And I want to a lot. You say, Brother Greg, you know, those things are the things that make you alive. The reason you're here today is because of you. No, friend. It turns out there's a system inside of me that actually takes all those cookies and turns them into food. This is a body built by cookies. <laughs> turns out I didn't have anything to do with it. Once they get past this, I could care less what happens. I'm going to see my doctor this week. He's going to tell me how great I am doing and what a great diet I must be on. He has no idea. And I'm not going to tell him, and Susan doesn't have his number. So, but I, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of anything. My lungs are working right now. My heart's beating right now. Turns out the blood's carrying oxygen to every muscle in my body right now. And I didn't have a thing in the world to do with it. And you don't have anything to do with yours either. And the minute God's done with you, you're done. So Samson says, I got to shine for this girl. And she's a Philistine. And I know she's not one of our people. She doesn't worship our God. She worships God Dagon. But I really love her. Well, the rest of chapter 14 is this great tragedy of relationship between Samson and his wife. His wife's father. His wife's father gives Samson's wife, takes his wife back from him. You can do that in those days. Take his wife back and gives it to his best man at the wedding. So he gets angry. So he kills a bunch of them. After all, that's what he's sent to do. Samson was raised up to kill Philistine. Why? Because the purpose of God in Samson's life is to put an end to the oppression of God's people. And Samson is the guy. You say, well, if I were God, I'd use a better man. I mean, this guy's got, he's just got an eye for the ladies. The Bible says he, he has an eye for three women. All of them are Philistines, which means every one of them are outside the covenant. Every last one of them. Then, then, of course, we have this interesting story. Verse 5, chapter 14. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Though he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, what's a, what's a part of the Nazarite vow? You don't touch dead things. You say, well, this lion is going to kill him. 
right. He should have killed the lion. He did the right thing. That's not the problem. There is a ceremonial process for going and presenting yourself to the priest. Now that you've touched a dead thing, you should have gone and presented yourself. But what does he, what does he do? He goes down and he talks to the girl. Because women are a problem for Samson. Then, of course, the end of this chapter, he finds a prostitute, also a Philistine. Then he finds Delilah, who's another Philistine woman. And all of these women are problematic in his life. All of these women result in all kinds of problems. And we could go on and on and on. There's, there's a reference to the people of Judah. The Philistines want to, to catch Samson, and Samson's hiding off in a cave. So they come into Judah, and they say, we're going to continue to to steal from you and, and, and hurt your people and all this, the Philistines against the Judites, and, and if you don't help us get Samson. So chapter 15, they, they, they get 3,000 men of Judah to go up in the hills to get Samson. Listen, if you've done something wrong and the law sends 3,000 officers to collect you, you are one bad dude. You are something. It doesn't take 3,000 men of Judah, except it did. So he has this arrangement. He says, look, I'll go with you. I just need you to guarantee me you're not going to kill me. No, all we're going to do is tie you up. He's thinking, tie me up? Great. Ropes don't hold me. So they tie him up, and they go down, and they present him to the Philistines. He bursts the ropes, takes the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a 1,000 of them. Interesting, he takes the jawbone after he's killed a thousand men with it and he throws it away. Now, if it had been me or you, we'd have taken it home to mom and said, Mom, put this in the trophy case. I really had a good day with this. <laughs> thousand men killed with the jaw of a donkey. So, chapter 16, the story goes on. Eventually, he meets Delilah, marries her. She, of course, seduces him into telling. This great secret, he eventually is captured by the Philistines. His eyes are gouged out. Why, are, why is his eyes gouged out? We don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't say, but I assure you this, friend. His eyes are his greatest stumbling block. And God took them from him. So there's no end to stories. I'll just mention three implications very quickly. The first thing we learn from the story of Samson is that no human leader is without flaws. No human leader. God raises up people to serve him, and they all have flaws. They all do. They all do. I came from a small town, small church. My pastor was a chain smoker. I remember back in the day, we're talking the 60s, my mother and others would sit around complaining about the pastor and his smoking. <laughs> that was pretty much the cardinal sin. A smoking preacher. My goodness, who'd ever heard of such? Then I uh, surrendered to the ministry and I went to work for him. And I not only heard about it, I saw it. Smoking preacher. My goodness. Flawed man. By the way, I'm not advocating smoking. I'm not advocating smoking preachers even less. I don't smoke, by the way, in case you're curious. I don't smoke. Never have. Not interested. I used to date a girl who smoked.
Not advocating that. <laughs> in fact, I'm not, I'm not even concerned about any of that. What I am concerned about the fact is that there's nobody who's not flawed. Nobody. Why would God use Samson? After all, God knows the future, and he knows that Samson's flawed. <laughs> he's, not, he's not going to use Samson to host dinner parties. He's going to use Samson to be a warrior and kill a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. <laughs> he's probably going to have some problems. It turns out we think that somehow these people are the Savior. We think Samson's the Savior. He's not. We think Gideon's the Savior. He's not. We think Jephthah is the Savior. He's not. We think Deborah or Barak, they're the Savior. They're not. They're not none of these people are the Savior. After this, Samuel, he's not the Savior. Saul, we need a king. Let's get us a king. We'll be like everybody else. What did God tell Samuel? You know the rest of the story. He, said, he told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. We need a king because kings are what people do when they need a leader. They elect a king. No, they're rejecting God because they think somehow a man is their savior. God raised up Samson for a specific task. He tells us plainly what it is in chapter 13 and verse 5. He says, I'm going to use Samson to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. The Philistines have had their way for 40 years because I have been judging Israel for their sin. I'm going to raise up Samson. And what do we know about Samson? He's violent. He's impulsive. He has a problem with women. He's ungodly. He's selfish. We have this notion that God only uses unflawed people. The better we are, the more useful we are. Well, the truth is, that's the truth. The better we are, the more useful we are in many contexts. But it turns out that God can take even the ones who are flawed, which by the way is including the ones who are good, better, as we judge better, as we compare people. Turns out God can use and does use all of these people. The point in all of these stories of the judges is the same, and that is God is greater than the sin of man. Samson is violent. Samson is a womanizer. Samson is ungodly. Samson is selfish. He's not like me, except he is. Except where he is. The point of all of this is God. Let me show you this in Hebrews chapter 11 very quickly. Turn to Hebrews, the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 32. You'll know that the 11th chapter of Hebrews is the roll call of faith. There are these great, wonderful people who are named all the way from Abel to Noah to to David, to Abraham, etc. They're all named, great people of faith. But he comes to verse 32, and he's going to mention four judges. So if you think that somehow Samson is a tragic character, or that Samson is this character we should, we should not somehow understand, I want you to note an, an idiosyncratic truth in this list. Look at verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Okay, so here's, here's this list of great people, Hebrews chapter 11, and in the list, he lists four of the six judges that are mentioned in the book of Judges, four of the six. 
It turns out these four are the four that we know the most about, and these are the four that the book of Judges identifies significant flaws with. Barak is, is tentative. Samson is a womanizer. Gideon, remember, he makes this linen apron that, that is a stumbling block to his family. Jephthah, he's a guy who's running this raider operation over on the far edge of civilization. He's, a, he's a basically running a band of bandits. Jephthah. Now, the question is, why didn't he include Othniel and Ehud, the first two of the six judges that are named Othniel and Ehud? We don't know any problems with those dudes. But they're not mentioned here. Why does he pick the four judges with problems? The point, of course, is that the problems don't disqualify them from being used by God as judges. They are listed here so that we might recognize that the, the issue here is God. The strength here is God. The glory here is God. We need a Savior, and his name's not Gideon. We need a Savior, and his name's not Samson, although God is going to use Gideon and use Samson to be a part of our interim salvation. He's going to save the, the nation Israel, which is ultimately going to provide security for our ultimate salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. Somebody has to protect the seed, or to use a Lord of the Rings illustration, to protect the ring. Somebody has to deal with this. What more shall I say? Then notice what he says. Verse 33. Think about Samson here. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Any of that true, Samson? Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put arm, armies to flight. Any of that true, Samson? It turns out when a preacher tells you that Samson was a loser, you got to hear what he's really saying. Samson is a flawed man, powerfully, powerfully flawed. Don't grow up to be like him. But the great victory is the power of God over our failure. There's one more thing, I'll say it quickly. And that is that ultimately, our greatest need can only be met by God. This great story, right? A barren woman, national enslavement. The Philistines have enslaved these people. There's cultural brokenness everywhere you turn. The culture is a train wreck. Samson, he lives under a vow, except he doesn't. He himself is a train wreck. Our God saves us from the destruction that others bring into our lives and the destruction that we ourselves bring into our lives. God has to save me not only from my parents' sin or my brother's sin or my extended family's sin or my neighbor's sin or my culture's sin or anybody else's sin outside of me, but God also has to save me from me, just like he has to save you from you. It turns out Samson can't save me from me. Any more Samson can save you from you. He uses sinful people. He even uses their actual sins 
It is a sin for Samson to break his vow. But he does. And God even takes a sinful man who is sinning to achieve his purposes. Why? Because ultimately, again, going back to Hebrews, this time to chapter 12, we are surrounded, verse 1, by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us therefore lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus. What's the message of Samson's life? Don't look to Samson. Turns out Samson's not the hero. There's only one hero, and he's not here yet in Samson's time. But he is here in my time. And you and I can look back the life of Christ as recorded in the Bible, and we can say, yes, he is worth living for. He is worth living a sacred life. He is worth not compromising with the world. He is worth it. He is worth not doing what is right in my eyes or my mind, but rather what is doing right in the mind of God. He is worth living a consecrated life. Let us lay aside the sin that clings to us so heavily. Let us throw it away and let us live our lives as a testimony to the greatness of God who, though I am a sinner, I have a Savior who has saved me from you and from me. And I have the promise of eternal life. Not just victory over Philistines, victory over my eyes, but victory over sin and death and the power of hell. You know how the story ends. In the end, they bring Samson out in the temple of Dagon, this great Canaanite deity. And they're going to make sport of him. And he puts his hands on the two pillars that are holding up the roof. And he asks God for power. And he pushes those pillars down and the roof falls. The people under the roof die and the people on the roof die. The Bible says 3,000 Philistines died that day. God began through Samson to end the oppression of the Philistines. To set Israel free. What God began, God finished. That's why the book of Hebrews says, Jesus has now sat down once and for all with the final sacrifice, the final redemption. Samson is a pointer. Samson is a reminder that we need a fix. We need a savior. We need someone who's going to solve our problem. And that someone is Jesus. Don't leave Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. Don't ignore Jesus. Make much of Jesus. The greatest thing God has done, could do for us, he has done for us in the person of his son. Let us not mock it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for the life of Samson. And we rejoice, Lord, in your grace. All of us, Lord, are sinners. All of us, Lord, have failed. All of us fail even more. And yet, you're stronger than us, greater than us, bigger than us, bolder than us. You're God. We thank you that your great design is finally consummated and culminated in Jesus, our Savior.
So may we look to him today with thanksgiving. And may we never leave the one who has given himself for us. You have power, Lord, over sin and the grave. And you have power over the devil and all of his lies. You have power over the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You are God, and there is none like you. We love you. Care for us. Lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you go, let me remind you that our Next Steps Corner is open.